How are we, Westside? Good. Let me ask you a question right out of the gate. How many of you love a really good cinematic plot twist? You just love that. that mo- In fact, I just had an impromptu conversation with Darren, who plays the keys. He grabbed me in the hallway backstage. He's like, Dan, have you, I just saw a movie last night, and he told me what the movie was. I can't tell you what it is because I can't endorse it. I haven't seen it, but he's like, oh, it was amazing. And there's this plot twist is what he said. And uh, there's something about plot twists that just like when it happens, it's just like, Oh my goodness, it like keeps you up at night. You wake up in the morning kind of piecing it all together. In fact, here's what I want to do right in this moment. I want to go in the Wayback Machine and I want to give three all-time plot twist moments in cinematic history. You with me? It's going to be a quiz. I'm going to give you a line from the movie and you're going to fill in the blank. Sound good? All right, online community, I want to say hello to you. You can uh, jump in, shout from wherever you are. Speedway Campus, same with you. Uh, South Sanctuary, here we go. This one, 1980 film. Luke, I am your father. I know it's super basic, but how many of you were there in the theater in that moment? And you were like, whoa, oh my gosh, didn't see that coming. And in fact, there's a whole canon behind that leading up to that moment, right? Here's another one. It's from the 1999 film in which this young boy says, I see dead people, six cents, right? And Bruce Willis and the whole thing, we think the boy sees dead people. And when he's actually seeing Bruce Willis, who is? He's dead himself. Now, how about, I think this is 1995. This probably, in my humble opinion, is the most amazing of all plot twists, Usual Suspects. Can I get anybody? Unusual suspects, all right. So uh, the whole thing is a little bit kind of in reverse. There's, there's this meek and measly, low-grade criminal named Verbal who is being kind of interviewed in the detective's office, and Verbal weaves together this story using artifacts from the bulletin board behind the detective's head, desk files, things on the coffee mug to invent a story about a mastermind criminal named... Kaiser Soze, right? And he leaves his statement, the whole thing. He's released from the detective's office, goes out onto the street. He's got this limp. He's kind of cowardly like, like this, but slowly and surely the limp begins to disappear. His hand is no longer disabled, and a black jaguar pulls up, and he smugly gets into the back seat with now an arrogant smile and then the movie ends with this line. It's very C.S. Lewis from Screwtape Letters. It's amazing. It says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And like that, poof, he's gone. Boom. And then like, that's it. That's the movie. And you're just stuck. You're going, oh my goodness, right? What makes a great plot twist? What makes, what are the elements that lead up to that thing that makes your heart race, that makes the bottom drop out, that makes you go, oh, I gotta now watch it 14 more times, I'm gonna watch it in reverse, I'm gonna slow-mo it, all those things. What, what are the elements that do that? Do we have any screenwriters in those? Like any storytellers, anybody that this is like your craft? I, uh, I started thinking, I wanted to like do some research on this. I'm like, who, who are the screenwriters I know? I know a couple of them, and I thought, oh, I've got a connection. Uh, to Dallas Jenkins, who's the screenwriter, director, executive producer of The Chosen. And um, so through my friends, actually his brother is a friend of mine, so I reached out to him, his name's Chad, and he put us in touch. And so had an opportunity to uh, talk with Dallas about what makes a great cinematic plot twist. So here are the five things that Dallas and I came up with uh, together about this. Okay, Uh, number one, it begins with mystery. 
Begins with mystery. It leans you in. There's different plot lines, right? They seem disparate. You don't know how it's all working. There's different elements and details. Not sure how it's coming together. But there's some problem that needs to be solved. Begins with mystery. Number two, there's a bigger story holding all these plot lines together. That's called a meta narrative. Bigger story holding it all together. Number three, it starts, a great plot twist, must start with the end in mind. You have to know where you're going. You have to know where you're going to finish, right? Number four, it requires airtight logic. When you get to that big reveal, when you get to that big plot twist, it has to make sense. How many of us have seen that, that B-rate movie where it's like the screenwriter got tired and he's like, I don't know how to finish this movie. I'll, the, the, the janitor did it. And you're like, no, no, that's, you can't do that. You have to start with the end in mind. And then lastly, here's why we love them. Here's why Darren grabbed me in the hallway and was an evangelist for this movie of his is because it's life altering. It's just literally like, oh my goodness. See, that helps us maybe access the story of a man named Cleopas and his companion in the New Testament. The gospel according to Luke as he writes out and documents the story of Jesus. If we go to Luke 24, we'll see, in fact, we're going to hear this story, this narrative, a true story, but given in story form. We're going to actually listen to the audio reading. As we're going through the New Testament challenge, you can get your resources and you can get actually the, the Bible to read and the way it's laid out is awesome. You can also get access to the audio reading and it's done by a master oratory specialist. His name is Max McLean. In fact, tonight he's speaking at the Kaufman Center. He's doing a rendition of the screw tape letters. This guy is an absolute pro. He's the voice behind this and he's actually been in town uh, this weekend for the uh, show at the Kaufman, so he recorded a special greeting to us, Westside, and then we get to hear his, his audio version of Luke 24. Now, as we lean in, I'm just going to tell you, we have the attention span that's about the same length of the attention span of a guppy, okay? That's literally, that's scientific. That's six and a half seconds. This is going to be a longer reading, now, what was cool for them is they were an oratory culture in Luke's day. We're more of a visual culture, so we're going to have to really lean in and engage. But first, a greeting from Max. Hello, Westside Family Church. Max McLean here. I'm excited that you've decided to take the New Testament challenge and to take this challenge in 40 days. Uh, many of you will engage in this experience uh, using the audio Bible that I had the privilege of narrating. Uh, and I want you to know I'm rooting for you. God's word promises that when it goes out, it will accomplish its good purposes in our lives. Today, our message is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verses 13 to 31. And let me read it to you from the audiobook provided by this New Testament challenge. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, 
Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. There it is, right there. Boom. Poof, he's gone, right? Now let's, let's talk a little bit about the backstory of what, what's going on. This is set right after Jesus' death and crucifixion, and now there's all these sorts of rumors that are going on. Is he dead? Is he alive? Is the body missing? Uh, some women have reported that they've seen him. Others have encountered him, and yet there's all sorts of chaos and confusion going on. And so Cleopas and companion don't know if it's his spouse, don't know if it's his friend or his brother, but they, uh, their only recourse, they think, is to leave Jerusalem, perhaps because because out of fear for their own lives, they head back the seven uh, miles to their hometown of Emmaus, trying to sort through the various disparate possibilities or scenarios or storylines. And really, there's, there's three options for them to choose. One is, Jesus is dead. He's dead as a doornail. He's dead as having been hung on a cross kind of dead, and he's been sealed behind a tomb with a large rock, that kind of dead. Two is... Well, maybe his body is missing. There's some conspiracy afoot here. Or three is maybe the women are right and he's alive. And they're trying to make sense of all of these, these things. Now, let's just stop for a moment. And I think those three options are actually very germane to you and to me right now in our lives. To you, is Jesus dead? where maybe he was a historical figure, but he had his day in the sun. And like other historical figures, he's now uh, a flash in the pan and, he, and we've moved on to other things. Or two, is Jesus just missing? Like, you're somewhat agnostic about it. You don't know, you're not sure. There's confusion going on. It's possible one way or another, but you can't piece it all together. Or three, is he alive? Is he alive? And are you following him as the risen Lord? I mean, those really are the, the three options as it relates 
to the historical and the practical and the spiritual question of Jesus. And which, where would you say you are? And by the way, it's totally fine and okay. I mean, the most important thing we can be is honest. Just honest. Is he dead? Is he missing to you? It's not clear. Or is he alive? Now, here's where maybe if we go a layer deeper, it gets a little more complex. How many of us right now would say, well, I believe he's alive, but I'm living as if he's dead? And others of us would say, I believe he's alive, I think, but Jesus seems missing in my life right now. Like, I don't know where is he in all of this. See, for the life of a follower of Jesus, we go through seasons, seasons of doubt, seasons of hurt, seasons of pain, and confusion, and we can find ourselves in any one of those three places, and maybe you're mad with him, and you're like, I think he's dead to me right now. So there's something really important about just being honest in that moment, and if Cleopas and, and his companion were honest, if there was a theme about the storyline that was shaping for them, I wonder if it wasn't failure. Failure. They're walking that seven-mile stretch back to their hometown, thinking through another failed Messiah. We've had one after another after another. We went through, if they go through their whole story from the exodus to the exile to 400 years of silence, and now Jesus seems just to be that flash in the pan. Or I wonder if it was a sense of failure around their failed investment. They went all in on Jesus like Bitcoin. And now what do they have? They're going back, going back to their old ways, going back to their hometown, going back to their old jobs. Everything they thought it was going to be that they just poured in, pushed all their chips in, gone. Or maybe there was a sense of survivor guilt. We failed to stop all that happened. Were they there when Jesus was being tortured? Did they flee when Jesus was hung from the cross like the other disciples? Did they have a sense of personal failure going on in them? And I think that's also a good question for you and for me. I know for me, when I look back on moments in my life, and I look back at failures in my life, it's really hard not to allow those failures to become the main storyline that, that name me that capture me, that say, this is the story, the story through failure. And I just know this is, this is so deep in us as human beings. Just in the last week, I've had conversations with different leaders and business leaders, one who said, you know, I've always in the past made decisions about uh, when I was gonna leave a company and start a new company. This was the first time someone made the decision for me. Or someone else who said, uh, I made a really big mistake and it led to great consequences and that's when I was forced out. Or a third person saying, in my life, in my relationships, on the personal side, everything blew up. How do you and I not allow the failures of our life to become the big story that name us and identify us? And what story are you right now holding on to? And if you're honest, you're allowing it to have more power over you. And it's defining you and your entire life is filtered through that moment or sequence of events. I 
I don't know if that's what Cleopas and companion were processing. But I know that Jesus wants to come to you and to me just like he did to them. It's quite an amazing, this is where the story gets really fun. They are completely dejected, walking along the road, and Jesus shows up. Now Luke gives us the benefit of knowing it's Jesus. They're clueless. They have no idea. All they know, this stranger has jumped into their intimate space zone. He's like literally, like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they, they literally stop. Are you, are you kidding me? And they literally say, are you like the only one in Jerusalem, which at that time during that season, there would have been like around 2 million people. Are you the only one that didn't notice the day sky going dark? Are you the only one that didn't see the tomb splitting open and dead bodies walking around? Are you the only one who didn't hear about the holy of holies and the veil being split from the top to the bottom? Are you the one that didn't know that this is the day that, that reset all the calendars to zero? Like, and, and, and Jesus goes, uh, no, like what things? I mean, he's playing dumb. Jesus is playing dumb. And I just thought about this in the moment at the 815 service. It's like, I wonder if he does that with us sometimes too for redemptive purposes. Is it possible that Jesus plays dumb with you? And Jesus is like, I don't know what things, tell me. Like when you bring it to him and you say, well, are you the only one? You know, all this stuff. Like, I don't know. Tell me more. I wonder if he's wanting to like get it all out. And these guys, they get it out. And then there's a turn. And Jesus begins to now offer some insight. It's like intel. It's like he's been reading the Jewish NSA files. And he's got insight into things, and he's connecting all of these dots. And it's absolutely incredible. And now he's got them eating out of his, his hand. And then they're like, well, we've, we've, gotten, we've gotten to our house, and like Emmaus like, happened like that. I mean, they were so captivated by all the things this stranger to them was saying that the next thing they know, they're staying almost on their doorstep, and Jesus not only plays dumb, he plays coy. He acts like he's going like, to go on to the next village, and they're like, no, like, would you, would you like, come with us and have a meal? It's been a long journey, and so Jesus does. They sit around the table. And it would be the custom of the host, of the patriarch of that, that host family to, to offer the prayer and to break the bread. But somehow Jesus usurps. He plays dumb. He plays coy. And then he totally takes over. It's awesome how he works. And he takes the bread and he breaks it. And that's where we see in verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. Poof. He was gone. And he's not the devil, right? He's the son of the living God, the risen Lord and Christ. And they're freaking out. They're like, oh my gosh. And they look at each other like, were your hearts like totally on fire and completely in fuego? And what was going on? Your heart was beating out of your chest. Yeah, me too. We've got to get back to Jerusalem. And so they break every speeding violation known to man in that time. And there they arrive in Jerusalem. And, and we, we learn in a different account that the doors were locked and they somehow bust through and they're like, they get to the other disciples. And they're like, we? have seen Jesus he was he was there and then he, he really we didn't know who he was he was in our intimate space zone but then he started talking about this and then then he broke bread poof and then it's like well, that's Jesus and they go we know we've already seen him <laughs> Mary and the other Mary they, they saw him too they have this like moment and they're like hugging I imagine and they're like high-fiving they're on each other's shoulders and they're, they're, you know, they're like Cleopas is body surfing or something I don't know what's happening but then Jesus appears he like appears right there. And then he says this thing. He says, have peace. Right. Have, I mean, 
Jesus has bodily appeared. Yeah, you know, like who even knows if he used a door? And there he is. And it's like, have peace. Don't be afraid. Too late. Too late. And, and he's, he's right there. And then he has the gall to ask for something to eat. Because apparently, when you are raised back from the dead, uh, that takes things out of you. And you need, you need food and sustenance. So they give him fish. So Jesus is throwing back tilapia. More than likely, sardines, which I think is really gross. But that's what they ate back then. And, and like, there's this moment where now Jesus brings it all home. Here's the moment. Look with me. Luke chapter 24. The great plot twist reveal. Verse 44, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Don't miss this. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Everything. That word panta in the Greek means the totality of all kinds. It means, it means everything. It means nothing has been left out. Nothing has been excluded. Like everything in the story has been fulfilled. And that word fulfilled means to bring it to completion, to bring something fully to an end. And in fact, Luke loves this word. In just the first four chapters alone, he uses this word fulfilled 15 times. And in fact, that's how he begins. Look with me, Luke chapter one, verse one. Luke is a doctor, he's gonna be very fastidious about how he's documented all of the evidence into airtight logic, and he's writing for a benefactor named Theophilus, and he says this, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Right out of the gate, Luke is starting with the end in mind. It's like, I'm beginning this story, but you need to know from the very end, the, the end has been in mind. He goes on, let me just show you another place. I'll just read it to you here. Luke chapter four, Jesus is in Capernaum. He's been handed the scripture of, of a messianic, kind of a like the, the, the headline messianic passage out of Isaiah 61. He reads it, and then he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And we go all the way back to this moment in Luke 24, and he's like, everything must be fulfilled, brought in totality, completely to an end. Richard B. Hayes, he's a, he's a scholar, excellent scholar, and here's what he writes about what Luke is doing here. He says this, of all the evangelists, Luke is the most intentional and the most skillful in narrating the story of Jesus in a way that joins it seamlessly to Israel's story. Now, what, what, do we, what do we know about Israel's story? Well, look at just the second half of Luke 24, verse 44. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Why did Jesus say those three things? Law of Moses, prophets, and the Psalms. Because it was those three sections that the Jewish people categorized their entire Bible, what we call today the Old Testament. That's how they were classified. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. What is Jesus saying? From beginning to end. From Genesis 1, verse 1, all the way to the end. Everything has been fulfilled. Everything has pointed to me. 
Theologians would call this a Christocentric view of reading the story of God where Jesus is connecting all of the dots. Here's what this means for you and for me. We don't have two books. We have one book. We have one Bible. And Jesus is weaving this story with the great plot twist of him being right in the center. And could you have imagined what listening to that sermon of Jesus along the road of Emmaus must have been like? Could you imagine as it literally, he's connecting dots for these two cats, and what, what stories was he telling? Abraham and Isaac, and how Jesus provided a scapegoat, which we know to become the Lamb of God, Jesus himself? Was he talking about Jonah and the three days in the belly of the well? Or was he talking about Leviticus, where the instructions were how the 12 tribes would camp out? That if you would look by way of a helicopter over the formation of the 12 tribes camping out, you would see them in the form and shape of a cross cross. Who knows? All the different ways Jesus is saying, and that part is kind of about me. Oh, and then when they were doing that, it's really it's kind of pointing back to me. And, and when that, that was happening, there was actually a foreshadowing of this very moment. Everything must be fulfilled. And that moment is here and it's now. That mystery revealed. That starting with the end in mind, you need to know that, that, that all of these things that's happened have not happened by chance and they did not catch your father in heaven by surprise. God has started with the end in mind and I was never as plan B or C. I am the plan A when he sent me here. There's a bigger story here at play than all of these little stories. They're not just little collections of sayings and parables. They're stories that are pointing to one big story. And there is airtight logic here that ultimately for them is life-altering. And that leads you and I to this place. One of the things in this series that we're going to do is we're going to say, based on the New Testament challenge, what is new? What is the testament? What, what are we going to testify to? And lastly, what's the challenge for you and I? Here's what's new. What was new to Cleopas and to the disciples is that Jesus is the great plot twist reveal for the bigger story, the ultimate plot twist reveal. What's the challenge for you and I? It's that Jesus today is still working out that story and he's not done. If I could rephrase that, I didn't like it when I looked at it this morning. I go, I should have worded that differently. Here's how I do it now. Jesus is still Lord of the story. No matter what's going on, no matter your news feed, no matter the broadcast, no matter whatever is erupting, no matter what's unraveling in your story, in our life, in our world, in everything around us, Jesus is still Lord of the story. Amen? And lastly, that Jesus has a great plot twist reveal for you too. In the ways that you think about yourself, in the ways that you understand your story, and if it's been through the lens of failure, mistake, if you feel like you just have too much baggage that you carry around, if you feel like you should cower along and let other people do the good work of Christ or other people Jesus might love, but he wouldn't love you, I just wanna tell you, I love how, I love how um, Brennan Manning puts it, he goes this, that the brokenness in our lives, the gospel, does not deny the brokenness of your life. The gospel does not deny the brokenness of your life. It denies that your brokenness has the last word. Let me say that again. The gospel does not deny brokenness in your life or mine. What it denies is that that brokenness has the last word.
because there's a bigger story. And everything is fulfilled in the great plot twist of Jesus. That's why when we look at Romans 8, verse 28, this is familiar to many of us as Christ followers, that I know that all things work together for good. That word all things, ponta again, everything. Everything works together for good for those who love Christ and are called according to his purpose. And we believe in that, not just because God loves us, but because in Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, in that moment 2,000 years ago, everything was fulfilled. The great plot twist of heaven in the flesh came to you and me, and now we have confidence by his life, death, and resurrection that in your life and my life, he's the great reveal too. So will you let Jesus rewrite that story? Will you let him be the plot twist in your life? I asked Alice Jenkins if he would share a moment of his failure and how God has redeemed it, and graciously, Here's what he offers. My own, my own personal plot twist is, is a, a little bit too long of a story to tell right now, but I'll give you the, the, the basics because it's what The Chosen was birthed out of. Um, my previous movie, The Resurrection of Gavin Stone, um, which had been set up and partnered with some of the biggest producers in Hollywood and some of the biggest studios in Hollywood and uh, had an opportunity to give me what I really wanted my whole career, which was to be accepted in Hollywood and to be legitimized and to have a movie that could really impact people and, and, uh, and surprise people and, and do really well and be successful. And the plan was for me to do multiple movies, multiple faith-based movies over the next 10 years. And uh, God had clearly been in this project because so many doors had opened up that were miraculous and so many opportunities were given. And uh, the, the, the optimism was really high. The movie tested, you know, through the roof uh, in test audiences and the expectations were great. And then it completely bombed at the box office. And we knew that within just a couple hours. And in just a couple hours, I went from being a director with a very bright future to a director with no future because all of these companies just pulled out of future plans and as they should have. And they said, look, we don't understand the faith market. I guess we need to go back to doing what we do best. And um, that moment in my life was one of the lowest moments of my life and certainly the lowest moment of my career. And I got to a place where I was legitimately okay with never making another movie. I was in that dark night of the soul moment that we talk about in the, in the hero's journey and that um, some of the, you know, the great storytellers and theorists and of, of all time from Aristotle to Joseph Campbell have talked about that moment, you know, that dark night of the soul. And uh, I think it's a spiritual moment as well. I think every revival uh, is preceded by um, crisis and I was in that crisis moment and I got to the place where I was genuinely okay with just being wherever God wanted me. And if that meant not making another movie or show, I was okay with that. And in fact, I thought that might be where my, where I was headed. And, uh, through, um, a, my wife who God spoke to her very clearly, uh, and pointed her to the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and to a person I barely know who texted me that night at four o'clock in the morning through Facebook messenger, the message of, your job is not to feed the 5,000. Your job is only to provide the loaves and fish. And that message, that truth that was, um, that was kind of just hammered into my brain over the course of 24 hours from multiple different people, all um, impressed by the Lord to share that with me, um, led to me being open-minded to just doing a little short film for my church's Christmas Eve service about the birth of Christ. And it also led to me being open-minded to crowdfunding the Chosen, which I thought was a stupid idea and would never work because 
the all-time crowdfunding record was $5.7 million from projects that had huge fan bases. And I was coming off of a career failure with no fan base. And that we ended up shattering the all-time crowdfunding record and that the show is now in every country in the world and translated over 70 languages. And I'm in, as I'm talking to you now, I'm about to go back to Texas to shoot the second half of season two. Um, it was birthed from failure. Um, it was birthed from a genuine, genuine, not just a, you know, not like a plot twist I had written out in advance. I was in that moment where I was genuinely planning on and okay with never making another movie. And then I just did that little thing for my church uh, on, a, on, a, on my friend's farm here 20 minutes away from me in Illinois. And, uh, and so I, I consider that to be <laughs> quite a, uh, a plot twist that uh, hopefully will, um, you know, may, 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 may God grant me the favor of, of maintaining that humility and that surrender and that brokenness that he did for me, that he gave me three years ago. Uh, and that has allowed me to maintain this, I think, surrendered posture even during The Chosen. Um, and, I, and I think that that may be part of why The Chosen is having the impact that it's having is because um, it's, it's, uh, it's, being, it's being shepherded by a broken, surrendered person and myself uh, who at any moment, God could take it all away and I'd be cool with that too. Hey, just a couple of things. One is if, um, if you're at that place, you're going, my plot line that plot twist in my life. I didn't know that Jesus is the one that fulfilled all things, including my things, my things, your things. And if that is new, if that's a plot twist for you, I just wanna give you some direction. Online community, just go ahead and say, I wanna get baptized. I wanna hear more about this story. Just put that in the chat box. And Speedway, if you want to go down to my left here, uh, there's some folks there who would love to come alongside you, fill in the gaps of that story, and possibly lead you into the waters. And here on the Lenexa campus, same thing, out in the commons, we have a baptismal and some folks in red shirts that would love to just celebrate the plot twist of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection for you. So I want to encourage you to head there. And if you're new, new here to Westside, I just want to say out in our comments here on the Lenexa campus, go and you can hear more about Westside and Four, four things that, uh, that make us beat deeply in our hearts, that make our hearts on fire and we'd love to come alongside you also you can put that in the chat box in the commons area at speedway as well now about this new testament challenge that we're kicking off not the only thing that's being kicked off today by the way do recognize there's another kickoff happening later this afternoon so i'll be quick i'll be quick but for this new testament challenge why are we doing this well, it's for the very same thing that happened for those disciples in that room when Jesus appeared. Look with me, let's just go back to this. It says, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And we know that between prayer and digging into the Bible, nothing is more pivotal nor powerful in our ability to live out that plot twist of Jesus in our lives. And so we're asking, God, open up my mind and my heart as we dig into the scriptures. That's what the New Testament challenge is about. And I gotta tell you, it's a challenge. My wife and I and our, our girls, like it's been a challenge to read that much. For eight weeks, we are going to be reading through the entire New Testament together. And it's a bit of a Green Beret challenge for us. And uh, uh, true confession, already behind. And yet, so very worth it 
to immerse ourselves in the deep heart of the Father as he's written down his heart, as he's written the story for us from beginning to end. All right, so how many of you have signed the wall or put your, your, your fist bump on the chat? How many of you are like, I'm in on this challenge, might be a little bit behind, but I am in. I want God to open my mind to the scriptures and transform my life. How many can't see? Just go ahead and shout it out. Like, yeah, I'm in, I'm in, awesome. Okay, that's good for 815 response, very, very good. All right, three things. One is there's a Bible reading plan. I love how they have laid out the Bible as a story so we can experience it as the story. And so you can go into the comments, you can post on the chat box, or you can go ahead and grab the, um, the link there and do that. Secondly, you can hear more of Max McLean's reading uh, from the audio, and there's also some videos for this that you can watch with your small group. And, uh, and if you want to join a small group as well, you can hop in and, and do that with us. More information you can find online as well. Now, a quick thing, a little bit of a plot twist. I got a message from Pastor Randy this morning telling me that Westside, we have overwhelmed the app, the audio reading app. It's completely shut down for the moment. Isn't that awesome? That is so cool. Why? Because we are like totally just high traffic on this thing, and uh, they were not anticipating such high engagement. So we love that. So if you go on like right now, it might not work for you, but uh, people are working on it. So grace and patience, if you don't mind. Sound good? So go in the peace of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit today. Amen.